I was thrilled to speak with Tamor Atagechi this week, founder of the brilliant and innovative Papier. I couldn't wait to hear more about how he built his business and the values that helped him shape it. With personalization being a big turning point in my own life, I was interested to hear more about Tamor's story of how his luxury personalized stationery brand has grown, with a whole new generation discovering the pleasure and the power of pen on paper. We talk about a business that blends the two worlds of digital and analog, the importance of the customer experience and the incredible collaborations Papier has made with emerging artists and iconic brands. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street from the kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses. And I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hello, Tamor. It is so wonderful to meet you. And as a self-confessed stationary addict, I am very excited to talk to you and hear your story. I actually think I suffer from something called, I've created this word, stationary aphelia. This is a proper condition. So welcome. It's going to be great to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. And it's great to talk to a fellow stationary addict as well. (laughs) (laughs) I've been following your journey and I'm really full of admiration. Obviously, personalization is something that I'm very close to. It's well in my heart. And again, that's why I'm so interested to talk to someone, another founder who's understood human connection and products that truly touch people's hearts. But before I get straight into it, I'm recording this series from my desk at home. Where are you and how have you found this time personally? I'm currently actually at Maison Papier, which is our office headquarters in Camden. It's not somewhere I'm based most of the time. I'm coming in kind of a day or two a week, but I've increasingly started to use it. I've kind of started to get a bit of work from home fatigue. So in terms of how I've found the period, for me at least, it's been a period of discovery and trying and actually learning a little bit about myself. I approached work from home, I have to confess, prior to this with a lot of scepticism. I was definitely a work from home sceptic and kind of had a sense that people who work from home weren't doing very much. And I've been proven very wrong. And I think it's been a lesson to me as well to just you know challenge the norms. Um, I've been incredibly productive. I kind of find I'm done by 3pm, which is a bit weird. And then I, I've got some time off. And I've really enjoyed elements of it. I've been cooking a lot. I've rekindled an old passion for cooking. And it's kind of been melancholic at the same time, because I have missed seeing my team. Mm. As a founder, I'm sure you know this, that some of the highs you get, it's just the buzz of seeing all your team together and actually seeing them all 
interact and be in one place. And I've, I have missed that, I have to say. Um, and so it's kind of sometimes left me feeling, am I actually needed? I, everything's going so well. What's the point in me being here? <laughs> yeah, but you know, until it goes wrong and then you will find your place. They'll look for their leader and, yes. and suddenly that's like, actually, that's I am needed. This is good. I'm good in a crisis. Us yes, entrepreneurs, exactly. aren't we? We're very good in a crisis. Um, I'd love to start with a little bit about your childhood because I read that your family were art and antique dealers yeah. and that your actual surname means antique dealer in Farsi, which is where your parents are from. So what was your childhood like? And I absolutely love that your surname (laughs) is what you actually ended up doing. Yeah. So it's fascinating. I mean, Atired Chi, Chi is kind of like the equivalent of Smith. So you've got goldsmith, blacksmith, you know, etc. Yeah. So Atire means antique. So we are antique smiths as a family. And, and, and actually, it has been the case. My father, his father and his father were, were all antique dealers, originally Persian rug sellers and Paris and London. And so there's always been this element of buying, selling and, and art and antiques. And my childhood was very Iranian. Both my parents are Iranian. And the Iranian cultural identity is very, very strong. The Iranians are very, very patriotic. And I've always been brought up being taught and told never to forget who I am, the fact I'm Iranian. And that's actually something quite interesting because, you know, who I am is both British and Iranian. And that's anyone who who has dual nationality knows that kind of sight internal tension. But what does an Iranian upbringing look like? Well, it's full of food. Both my brother and I were plumped up as kids. Um, <laughs> before we got to choose our portion sizes, we kind of made it into secondary school, slightly larger than we should be. And yeah, lots and lots of food, lots of warmth and generosity, a really beautiful upbringing and um, very Iranian, I'd say. So you actually grew up surrounded with the art of buying and selling. Yeah. As you said, it was very much part of your DNA. It was in the surname. And then at 17, you actually set up your own stall at Portobello Market selling antiques, following the tradition. Yes. Was that the moment that gave you that taste for business? You know, that valuable experience that you thought, oh gosh, I love this. Yeah, definitely. I think I've kind of always bought and sold things all throughout my life. Actually, even younger, I remember episodes at prep school when I was awkward things. And so I think there was always an element of that. Or in the playground. Or in the classroom. I think I was auctioning (laughs) drawings that I'd traced probably. I just loved the concept of auctions. And I think that's thanks to my dad. I remember being taken to an auction really early on. I mean, it is thrilling. It's like theatre. My dad is an antique dealer. He does it privately. He doesn't have a shop. I mean, our house is basically a shop, right? So (laughs) so I I remember asking my dad, how much are you selling that for? And then he'd say a price. I said, but how have you worked that out? And I remember all these questions asking him about this concept of buy and sell. And he taught me very early on. He said, well, it's it's how much someone's willing to pay for it. And that was a really interesting lesson for me around Mm. just pricing and just actually how it works. So, yeah, I I decided I'd give it a go. I was buying quite a lot. One advantage I had versus other antique dealers who were kind of slightly older and gray haired was I could use the Internet. And I was finding (laughs) some great things on online auctions and eBay even. So I bought quite a lot of things and set up a stall on Portobello Road. And I describe it as the best MBA you can possibly have, (laughs) being on a market stall and learning to sell and such an incredible experience. And I I miss it, frankly. I think maybe I'll pack it all in and go set up the stall again. (laughs) 
funny thing is I might be right next to you because <laughs> I set up something called my local fair before the days of, well, it was online selling, but you know, dial up modem sort of time. And I actually had my own trestle table selling my own wares. And that was what led to not in the high street. So I'm really with you. But um, I totally understand when you say the alternative MBA, there's nothing like that sort of gritty beginnings, totally. you know, when you really get to know your customer, you understand how to sell. And I think selling is a tool that we really underestimate. You know, so many founders that I talk to started in sales and actually it's a fantastic thing. So we go Portobello Market, mm. Wheeler Dealer, mm. then you go on to study history of art at Cambridge. Yeah. Not the normal experience of those storeholders there. No. And then you co-founded the tab which was a student news website. You started it with friends. Mm. And actually, I think I remember there were these elements of photos or, or photographs being shared. And it's sort of quite scantily cladded, provocative poses. And it was all over the headlines, I think it was. Was that your paper that curated those images and your headlines? Am I remembering this right? You are right. Um, I think it was... Um probably one of those university fun experiments to set up a tabloid. And I kind of reflect back on it. I have to say there's elements of it I'm not actually particularly proud of. <laughs> so moving on from selling, buying and selling things. The other thing I got really hooked on is the concept of building a brand or something that people love mm. or really want, something viral. I think actually, you know, this was a period when actually the concept of things being viral was actually not discussed and, and yeah. we actually created something that really did go viral we, we mm. were in you know frankly a quite academic stuffy institution which I love though as in I, I had some of the best years of my life at Cambridge but it's it's quite archaic and old-fashioned and all they had really was this quite um, highbrow kind of newspaper called Varsity and it was kind of full of essays and stuff. And a group of us challenged that and said, look, just because, you know, we're all here to study and et cetera, doesn't mean we, we don't want something a bit lower brow, frankly. You know, that doesn't... And, and, and we tested that concept and we produced the tab, which is a pun because it's short for tabloid, but also Cambridge students are, are known as tabs. Oh, I didn't know that. And it went absolutely bonkers. I mean, you know, we, we set up the website and stuff and the, it was crashing in terms of traffic and all the national newspapers picked it up saying, look, even Cambridge students love a tabloid. And, <laughs> um, it was an amazing experience to suddenly see something that you've thought up in a bedroom being spoken about in this micro community of a university. I mean, everyone was on the website every day. So I think that thrill of virality mm. is quite addictive, I have to say. And I know that you're no longer obviously involved in it, but the tab is still going so strong. And it's almost like an institution that you've created there, like a bit of a legacy. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's fun meeting. And it's kind of why I decided... I always want to work in consumer. Yeah, That's what's so thrilling is it's everyday people. It's your friends, it's your family, it's your colleagues that are using something day to day, which I think is so exciting. Yeah, you're right. It's that connection, isn't it? You forget that so many people don't have this world that you and I live in, which is we're constantly connected to people and customers. We're not mm. sort of sitting behind a desk and sort of quite removed, which potentially you might have felt because you then graduated uni and you went to work at Bain and Company, which is one yes. of the world's top consulting firms. You were there several years, but something just wasn't 
quite connecting for you. You know, I love this feeling, the sort of entrepreneurial itch. I mean, it's just like the best feeling ever. And it had to be scratched. So you quit your job and you decided to start your own business, Papier. Mm. So what was that light bulb moment? I joined Bain because I had this concept of I needed a proper job. Um, Mm. I've been selling stuff on a market stall. I built this, you know, slightly bizarre tabloid. (laughs) I just, you know, thought I just need a proper job. I need to try and learn something. So I joined Bain on the principle that I'd be taught how to run a business. And and, and certainly it did do some of that, but it didn't solve this entrepreneurial itch. You you just couldn't stop thinking. I couldn't stop thinking about it. What, you know, I was constantly thinking of business ideas and Mm. pestering people on desks next to me, say, what do you think of this idea? And they'd say, oh, that's hopeless. (laughs) You're never going to make any money out of that. And I'd just constantly be talking about it. I can't remember if someone told, told me, but someone said, just stop talking about stuff and just do something. So I actually quit without having a clue what I was going to do. And I started to think about the things that I love, because if you do something you love and it doesn't go to plan, at least you've enjoyed it. Mm. So I went on that principle and I have this weird stationary addiction. And I realized at that point, there wasn't a direct-to-consumer brand that was trying to define that category. And this was a period where brands were starting to try and own categories. So made.com at the time was going Mm -hmm. into furniture saying, let's own that. Glossier, which is now really big, was saying, let's own beauty. Away, you know, subsequently said, let's own travel. So I said, well, let's be the Glossier station. Let's build the direct-to-consumer brand that owns it. And, And that was thrilling to me because it allowed me to tap into this love of stationery allowed me to be creative and it had that selling element you know I wouldn't be selling antiques I'd be selling notebooks which is great (laughs) what I love is that you sort of looked at who's doing this category really really well you know and as a stationery addict I was absolutely a Smyson's customer Mm. and then when Moonpig came along you know that was the other end of it Mm -hmm. but what you've done is exactly right you've taken that category and said no let's do this best in class but Let's have high quality products, Mm. design it beautifully, but it's affordable. Let's add in that element of personalization. Let's get away from gimmicky. It feels very solid. And that's what it does to me. What was your experience when you tried to share that vision? You know, we're going to redefine stationery. Yeah, yeah, no, it's so it's such a good point. I mean, so it depends who you, I mean, whether it's to friends, to family or to investors. I mean, if you just take friends and family first or, or whatever, they just think you're nuts. I mean, people knew I love stationery, but they're like, hang on a second. You're literally going to build a stationery business. You know, I, I, and I actually just did quite a lot of it in what I describe as stealth mode. I said, you know what? Yeah. It's so exhausting and draining having the same conversation so I just basically hid in a cave and just started to build this business in stealth mode and interestingly with investors it's interesting because the majority of our customers are actually female Mm -hmm. and you do get male stationary addicts myself included as part of that I was going to mention this was it quite a female did people go what you like stationary there was definitely an element of that and investors sadly, are primarily male. I know, yes. So the first thing they go is, who buys stationery? And I remember these meetings where one of them goes, actually, my wife buys a lot of stationery. And then another one goes, oh, yeah, my wife buys. And there's this realisation that actually there is a huge segment of the market called women and they actually have different behaviours and trends. So there's a separate bit of convincing to do where you go, by the way, 
stationery is not a small market or industry. It's absolutely massive. There's always been an element of challenging people to look mm. at this category that's actually massive. And no one has really tried to define that category with one single brand. Funny, isn't it? Because uh, I remember having the same experiences where the potential investors that we were pitching to with our little bags full of personalized dinosaur t-shirts and who buys craft online and hmm. who, who does this? And then actually they kept on talking about their wives buy a lot of gifts online, but yeah. that's not for them. And then you're like, no, but that's the whole point. Women spend 90% of the disposable income in any household. Hmm. So Actually, let's have a look at what she's buying. Mm. So what were those early days? So you you locked yourself away in your cave. Yeah. I know that you raised an amount of money from seed funding. Yeah. And it's that moment that I think people are so interested in. But how did you actually then do it? You really do have to have a conscious moment in your head where you'll say, no, I am doing this. Um, I remember actually just saying, look, that's it. I'm just going to spend every minute of the day on this. I guess the moment it really became real was when I did actually, you know, go out, ask people to invest and someone said, I'm going to invest in this. Mm. And I think it's at that point for me as well, where I said, hang on, someone's putting their money behind this. And I now don't just owe it to myself and everyone else around me. I've got people who are actually investing in this. And I think that was really what moved it from being this slightly crazed project in my cave to actually, you've now got to deliver. Mm. You've actually got someone who's going to say, well, where's my return on that investment? I found that at least helpful. It's finding your pressure points. Mm. If you're your own boss, being that person to know your Achilles heel, mm. what will make you work even harder, even when you want to give up? Totally. When you've got that sort of money behind you, mm. you're working all the hours. How did you start building that team? Because that's really, I certainly from my own experience, when that team started coming in, and of course, everyone had 20 jobs each. Mm. How did you find those people that you could just lean on in those early days? Yeah, so you're absolutely right that I have to say it's one of the funnest bits is where you get to be the CFO, the COO. You, you just get to be everything. I mean, it's I agree. absolutely exhausting and it cannot go on for very long. Otherwise, you will just drive yourself <laughs> around. But it's incredibly fun. I mean, you just get to be everything. Yeah. So that's, that is exactly how it starts. You basically don't get any sleep. And for me, I mean, hiring people, recruiters are not an option at that point. You're not going to start paying paying recruiter fees no. to try and find something. My goodness. So I remember just calling up Sophie, who's now our brand director, and saying, can you give me a hand working some of this stuff out? And then I called up a, a friend of mine from History of Art Day. So I, someone told me, did you know George makes websites these days? And I went, really? <laughs> so I called him out and said, apparently you make websites. And um, he said, yeah. Do you yeah, so can, can I meet? So, so we have this meeting. So, and these people who I'm talking about, these slightly, you know, chance encounters became my founding team. That, that is how it started. I think that's kind of what you have to do. You just got to see who's who's around willing to willing to help. And yeah, that's at least for me how I built that initial team. It's so good to hear you say that. And same here. You know, it was my sister ended up becoming the third employee of Not on the High Street. She had a friend from university, became the fourth. Her friend 
friend who happened to build websites mm. came and helped build our first website and he was a fifth member of staff. Yeah. He became the CTO. She became the head of product. It's also because they really like you and they're friends. And if they believe in your vision and you've got that skill, you know, that double whammy, if you see what I mean, mm. it's actually very electric in those early days. So it's an amazing thing, especially as a founder, when you feel like there are people around you that are not doing this for the wage packet, certainly, because yeah. you can hardly pay them anything at the beginning. Totally. Yeah. And I think, and, and, and you know, you talk about those pressure points and those moments of realization where you're like, no, hang on, you better make this work. That's the other one, right? So actually, Actually, someone's just quit their job and they've just taken a pretty material pay cut to believe in this absolutely crazy idea and vision. And that's inspiring, I have to say, and it's, it's incredibly rewarding. Mm. And it does come back to that point around selling. And actually, you think, you know, before you start selling your product as a brand and consumer business, you're selling the vision to try and hire people. Mm. A lot of that came from those early days at Portobello Road when you're just actually trying to convince someone to spend some money on, on an antique. And they've got to take your word that it's actually 19th century and it's got all this history around it. So, you know, it's all linked in that respect. In the last series, I gave you the chance to win a one-to-one mentoring session with me, and I am thrilled that I'm doing the same this time. Plus, there'll be 10 opportunities to win specially tailored business mentoring sessions from the NatWest Entrepreneurship Managers. This team have coached tens of thousands of startups and business owners across the country so they know their stuff. To be in with a chance to win, All you need to do is sign up to the NatWest Business Builder using our code. The Business Builder is a completely free e-learning site full of information and advice covering everything from well-being to finance. Head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker for all the details. Now, as you know, each week we run a competition with NatWest, who give away their ad break to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to tens of thousands of listeners. So without further ado, let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner. Hi, everyone. My name is Vanessa and I work for an amazing company that is Leafage. It was actually founded by the lovely Kay Zuppermas after she realized the importance of putting your well-being first after the sudden loss of her father in 2016. This was life-changing for her, and she set out on a path to find meaning and purpose in her life. Some months later, Kay has now revolutionized the way in which her city-dwelling peers, who had limited access to their own green space, interacted with nature. She now has interactive, creative, and engaging terrarium workshops, DIY kits and other creative products, which are dedicated to helping people realize the importance of their well-being. She has also been recognized as a trailblazer in the wellness space and was one of the finalists for the E-Nation Female Startup of the Year in 2019. If you'd like to find out more, visit the website and Instagram page at weareleafage.com. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be heard by tens of thousands of people, we've created more information on what we're looking for at our website, holly.co. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. You launched initially with just greeting cards and stationery. And I know that very quickly you experienced fast growth. And then 
I think, you know, you add that design and the quality, as we mentioned before, and the personalization. And then you went on to then build out basically a full product range that touched all customers' key moments and times, you know, Mm. uh, weddings, family albums. Was that deliberate? Did you always think that that's what you wanted to do? Because I feel like milestones in people's lives, it's actually a really good strategy. I really can't remember how conscious it was or to what extent it was just based <laughs> so on customers. Just, go on, just say it was absolutely planned. It, it was completely planned, absolutely. <laughs> I think, uh, but as you say, we launched, we launched with, with stationary and greasy cars and that still is the core of the business. There are so many shiny distractions of, oh, what about this new category? And someone says, have you thought about doing personalize this or that and 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 for us at least you know as a direct-to-consumer stationary brand trying to build a category we've got to be focused but you're absolutely right that what we realized is that these customers were thinking of stationary much more holistically they weren't just thinking i need somewhere to buy my cards and my notebooks they were actually saying well i've been buying my notebooks from you and i and i love them and i'm about to get married and actually if you think about from our perspective well it's not too dissimilar. We're producing beautifully designed products from independent artists and illustrators, and that could be wedding stationery. And in the end, what we said, well, Papier needs to be there at all those points, because once they've bought into the brand, they'll want to buy more of more products around that. So really, we, we take our product lens from the customer. What, what, what is it that they want? And what is it that, that makes sense for them in this family of stationery overall? Um, and that, that's how it kind of evolved. Uh, but as I say, it's, it's this constant tension of making sure we don't lose focus though you know mm. it's so tempting to go to that oh yeah the next shiny object that's, yeah. that's lurking around the corner I used to call it like hidden in my drawer so I used to people thought I was nuts interviewing them you know I'd say listen I've got many things in my bottom drawer I need to open it and I can take them out but only when I have the right people because opportunity is in my bottom drawer but I have to put it away because ultimately I've got to keep focus on the focus you know what we could do is endless you know, what we should do and what we're good at, actually, that's where the discipline comes in. The idea that you were entering into this area and you basically had an endless possibility. You you had all these milestones that were coming up. And actually, for anyone listening, how does the life cycle of your customer have interaction with your brand across their entire lives? Ultimately, who is my customer and where are they going in their lives? How can my brand enrich their lives. Have you ever worried about tech taking over, you know, the handwritten card letter Mm. leaving us, feeling outdated? Has that ever worried you you, or have you always had faith? I, I think I initially had blind faith. And over the past four or five years, what I've realized is actually the data is showing that I can have a lot of faith in it. And it's absolutely fascinating seeing the trend. So if I just take another parallel of ebooks, yes. if you look at the makeup of people reading Kindles, it's not the younger generations, it's the older generations that are using Kindles. And the young generation now, so 20, people in their 20s, are buying physical books. Mm. I think it is a reaction against how much digital consumption we've got. I agree. The reality is we get thousands of WhatsApp messages and emails and texts a day. And so nothing really cuts through. What does cut through is the exceptions to that. It's the handwritten letter. It's something coming through the post. And people will always want forms of communication that cut through, that actually say, that's made me think, that's made me stop. 
The other parallel is the diary. So the Papier diary has been an organization stationery, the fastest growing category for us for the past two years. Mm. And we that for me is fascinating because we all have smartphones now with a calendar function in there that tells us what we're doing. But what people are using these planners and diaries for is that moment to just get off their phone and write something down and be able to connect with their plans, their thoughts and their ideas. So I think there's this amazing theme and trend where stationery is actually becoming people's kind of safe haven to just Mm. go in there, make notes, write cards to one another. And I think that's really amazing. It's it's definitely not something you could have predicted. Um, And as I say, I probably didn't think that at the time. I just had this blind faith that there'd be enough people out there that really want to engage in this. But the trends are showing that that's actually growing. I love what you're saying there. It is therapeutic. Writing a list, organizing your thoughts, um, even organizing your dreams and what your visions are. Do you think that the blending of the worlds, because I know yours, obviously your digital footprint is large. You have a fantastic website that's very efficient. So you've sort of blended these worlds, I suppose, of the digital and analog. You've sort of allowed tech to fuel the human spirit and what we're describing. Absolutely. And I think, you know, not on the high street's a good example of this, which is Papier is not anti-tech. I mean, we are a tech Mm. business. All our sales are driven online. Mm. Our team is made up of product and developers. But what we do is we use technology to enable some of these other elements, like for us, analog products. Uh, And I think the reality is, if you look even at COVID as well, people do like elements of technology. They like the convenience. Mm. They like the ability to actually personalize things online, see what it's going to look like, click order, and it comes to them. What they don't like, they don't really like e-cards that much. I mean, I don't really like e-cards that much. People basically say, look, we still love physical products. We love them coming through the post. We love sending a real invitation to one another. Just make that process a bit easier for us. And that's what technology does. It makes some of those things easier. And by way of personalization, it makes that possible. I wanted to touch on something that you said that really resonated with me. You said that you want people to return because they love your product and not because they have a discount. Mm. And this is actually something important. And I think for the small business community listening or those dreaming or those who are just consumers who also might say, I'm always waiting for that discount. Because we see huge retailers offering money off left, right and center. Mm. Potentially, we've seen brands that actually their customers are just waiting. They know that the discount's around the corner. So they hold off on buying full price. I know this is something you feel strongly about, and I do too. Tell me about this now becoming part of your DNA and your sort of philosophy. I think one of the signs of a strong brand that actually connects with people, that actually inspires people to buy, is their ability to drive full price sale. There is a balance to be had. Promotions have a place, whether it's to run stock down because you've got too much stock, or whether it's to draw attention to a new category that you've just launched. They do have a place. Very rarely are these decisions made consciously. You just think, well, we we should be on sale or we should be promoting. I just think that unless you really understand what that's doing, is putting your product on 20% sale going to drive at least 20% more volume into your store? And actually, remarkably, the amount of times that I've kind of spoken to other brands about this and the answer is usually, I think so. I mean, well, you know, I, I guess so. So I think with promotions especially, 
you've got to do it really consciously and be aware of what you're driving and what success looks like in defining that. Because if you just do it whenever or whatever, you will damage your brand and you will train customers to think of you as a discount brand. It's very easy to fall into. It's very hard to come out of. So we've always really erred on the side of not doing it. And I think it's as tempting as it is just to put something on promotion. We, It's a couple of times a year that we actually put our entire catalogue on sale. Brilliant advice. And when you just mentioned there, it's very easy to fall into. Yes, it is, because it's slightly like, you know, if you wanted to pull a lever in your business, let's say times are hard, you can offer a discount. And yes, money temporarily will come in. But what you're doing is long-term damage. You're actually training the customer to actually start to think of you differently. And I think that when you then realize that, it's very difficult to retract that. How do you become not a discount brand? How do you make people pay full price for the probably the same type of item? It's incredibly difficult. Um, I want to talk to you also about, because design, you have this wonderful air around your brand and collaborations have been absolutely key in it. I know that you work with independent artists and illustrators to iconic brands such as Disney and the V&A and Liberty, just to name a few. I think collaboration, it sounds easy to do, but it's very important, isn't it? Picking the right collaboration and what that does to you as a brand so that you can still retain your own brand identity, but that you can introduce these elements. Tell me about your experience and what makes a good collaboration. Yeah, collaborations have been a really core part of our brand DNA from day one, and it still is. We've actually kept that process relatively abstract and creative. We haven't got some kind of scorecard where we go, who are the brands that we want to connect? We let it behave somewhat organically and we let it happen across the business. So when it comes to collaborating, I think the things to think about are What does that look like by way of brand alignment? Why are you aligning with that brand? Is it because you are putting your brand in front of a different audience? Or is it because you you have very similar values as businesses and brands? I think those are the things to think about when going into any kind of collaboration. And I think for us, it's been that element of reach to access different customers and different fans. And we think of other collaborations or other brands as communities. And I always try and kind of use the word community because that is really what a brand is. A brand is a community of people that have some kind of commonality in their values, their principles, and they can rally around a brand or a product or whatever it is. That's one of the nice things about collaborations is you find other brands in other parts. So whether it's the V&A, you know, they are a cultural institution that champion craft and art and design. And that's absolutely something that we do. That's the key thing with collaborations is making sure that you kind of understand what it is that's binding these two people together. Where they don't work, I think, is wherever you see I've seen this happen before. You kind of see a brand and you go, what have they got to do with each other? I think usually what happens there is someone in the brand department has been told, go and do collaborations because they're cool. And they've (laughs) just found some company and and there's just no alignment. There's no story behind that. I think that's when it doesn't work and actually can backfire. I was just going to say it's brand damaging, isn't it? It Mm. it looks sloppy and and it doesn't make sense and ultimately becomes landfill. And this is what I also wanted to talk to you. Was this one of the core missions of Papier to have sustainability at its heart? You know, so when you were in your 
cave. Mm. Was that one of your first things you thought about or has that come during your journey? It's come during the journey. I think I would like to say that in that cave, I was thinking of sustainability first and foremost. But like many other people, I've gone through a process of education mm. over the past five years. I think my be- yeah, my, us too. my own behaviours, my own buying patterns were very different five years ago than they are today. We did a lot of learning about our own industry. Um, and I'm sure a lot of fashion retailers have been going through that to actually start to look at it. One thing that was very key is that as soon as we, we we brought this up, it has become a core part of our business. We have a, a very central initiative at Papier called Future Papier, where we actively look at the changes we need to make as a business and brand in order to be as sustainable as we can be to make sure that we give back to the planet and not just take from it. And that's something that's very important, not just to me now, but to our workforce and our team at Papier. And when you talk about brands and communities, the most important community beyond your customers is your own team. Mm. That community in itself, if they are asking and they're saying, look, we need to move this brand into a more sustainable space, well, we have to respond to that. So it's been fascinating to learn about it. What's been really rewarding and pleasing to know is that actually the industry in itself and the decisions we took earlier on, primarily around quality, have meant that we are more sustainable than most stations out there. And actually, because we weren't choosing the cheapest papers whenever we were looking at at things, we were using, and we have been, and we, we now have it as a very central principle, FSC certified papers from sustainable forests. We don't use any papers that are imported from virgin forests outside of Europe. So that process of education has been really important and fascinating for us. By putting quality at the centre of your brand, you have a way that you print on demand, that you have zero excess stock. Yeah. You know, so much of us will have huge amounts of stock that they haven't sold through. And again, when you think about landfill, this is actually a real issue. Again, that was to do with quality when you started it, but has actually worked incredibly well now that you have a focus on sustainability. Absolutely. I think the zero stock model or low stock model is a win-win. So we've always been a zero stock model and that's been fantastic from a business perspective, but from an environmental perspective, we only produce goods that people want. Mm. We're not producing anything more. And I think that's something that supply chains are changing and brands increasingly are looking for shorter run um, stock so that they don't have to deal with that. And, And the environmental aspect of it is now a very big part of it. There was a period of time where fashion brands used to burn clothes that they couldn't sell. And, you know, those days are over. But increasingly, this mounting pressure, not just on margins, but on the environmental impact, I think will really change supply chains so that they are much more focused on the demand of the end user and not just creating masses of goods and then trying to sell them for ridiculously low price and just clogging up all of our landfill. year together with our friends at three we're working to make business dreams come true share your aspirations on social using the hashtag holly and co dreamer and who knows what will come true with a three means business plan i love that you can get up to 500 pounds of benefits from their specialist partners to help give your business a helping hand whether you need support with accounting or building a new website three have got you covered now here's a short story about those that dreamt big and flew 
William Morris is recognised as the 19th century's most celebrated designer, but at the time was regarded as rebellious, so his path to commercial success was against the odds. Driven by curiosity, he spent much of his life fighting against the status quo. In a time where status was defined by what you owned, he famously said, have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. And it was this philosophy that went on to establish Morris as a key figure in the arts and crafts movement, always championing a principle of handmade production that didn't quite chime with the Victorian era's focus on industrial progress. Born in 1834, he had a privileged childhood and spent much of his time exploring local parkland, forests and churches, all of which helped develop an affinity with the history of buildings and beautiful design. William went on to study classics at Oxford before training as an architect and befriending esteemed artists of the time, all of whom would go on to influence his ideas for design in the future. Going against the grain, Morris created his own workshop and sought to restore prestige to the mass-produced factory-led textiles that were gaining popularity at the time. With everything crafted by hand, Morris designed dozens of patterns for upholstery and woven and printed cloth, creating some of the most recognisable textiles of the 19th century. In the late 1860s, he began writing poetry and produced his first wallpapers with designs influenced by English gardens and hedgerows. His determination and insistence on understanding a process coupled with his unwillingness to follow the rules helped create a lasting legacy for a man known as one of the most significant cultural figures of Victorian Britain. Don't forget to share your own business dream using the hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. And to find out more about Three's business plans, search Three Means Business. Now, back to conversations of inspiration. I know that you're highly ambitious and you're constantly working as all entrepreneurs and I can tell you're still in love with your brand. You've launched Papier in the US, you're now selling in 38 countries and in May you created your first campaign for TV. Was that in lockdown? It was It was in lockdown. It was one of the very few TV campaigns actually filmed, recorded, produced in lockdown, which was an experience in itself. Remarkably productive, remarkably <laughs> uh, effective. And it's down to the teams involved uh, making that work. But yeah, we did produce that in lockdown. Looking at what you do, you know, you're at bridal shows, you have workshops, you have amazing pop-up stores, which make me drool. With the high street in disarray, what I wanted to ask was, what's your points of view on that for the future? I think brands do still have to connect with their customers. And I think that's the overarching objective is to form that really strong bond with their community. The very fact that I'm here in the office and the fact that our teams have been asking for some more in real life interaction and saying, look, can we at least come in once a a week or something, something we were discussing before we started recording, is evidence that actually brands do need to participate in real life. And so whether or not that means the traditional shop on the high street that is open nine till six every day or whatever it is, I think that's more challenged. Mm. 
with us, you know, the workshops that we do, the events that we host, actually seeing the brand and the community in real life is important. And I think that it's very easy to think that you can just exist and build a brand without any interaction with your customers in real life. And, you know, I think perhaps one of the things that trading on Portobello Road taught me is that real connection is so important. You learn a lot about your customer. You learn about a lot about your community. So I think that the future does still have a place for physical experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's incredibly sad to see what's happening on the high street. And I think um, you are seeing shops shutting and more and more shops will shut. But I think if, as a natural optimist and as an entrepreneur, if you're not an optimist, then um, you're going to have a tough ride. Um, (laughs) I'm excited about what the future does look like, because if we are going to be spending much more time at home and not in the office, then maybe our high streets are going to have a different purpose. Maybe it's Mm. not about going and just buying that one thing that you could have easily done online, but it's about engaging with the brand in a different way. People still want to feel and touch and, and all of those elements that can't happen online have to be there. So we still see a real role for the brand in real life. And I think more and more brands will think in that same way. So interesting, all of this. And I could definitely continue salivating over stationery all day long with you. But at the end of all of my interviews, I do use the analogy that um, running your business, being an entrepreneur is, and I think you'll agree, being you know, stuck on this epic roller coaster where your tummy is in your mouth one day and then you know your hair's flying high in the sunshine on another day. It hasn't been obvious during this interview that there have been lows Hmm. during this journey. Has there been a low that would stand out? I'm not sure if it's just because it's recent. I think despite the fact that the lockdown period from an online perspective has been positive commercially, I found that a lot of the period has been a real low for the business. I think we built this office, Maison Papier. We group of us invested a lot of time and love and passion and energy in building what we thought would be a space for us as a family. And we talk about the team as a family. And I do remember shutting the office the day that we actually just said, it's all over. That that was a real low for me, at least. It felt like something bad was happening. And I think um, it definitely impacted me and the team. And ultimately, during that period, there were other lows involved. We furloughed, we ultimately made some people redundant in that period not something we've done before. And I had to talk to my entire team and tell them that's what I'm doing and what we're doing. And doing all of that from my home, not being able to see them, not being able to talk to them was a real low. And I think as a founder, those are the points where you actually, where it really comes home. It's not fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think, you know, as a a founder, you have so much fun building a business. And the reality is that there are points that it isn't fun. And um, it's actually quite sad. And it's actually very real. And as an individual, you've made mistakes, uh, and other people are paying the price for those mistakes. And I think that was certainly a low for me. And conversely, a great high that you've experienced. It's a cop out, but I can't pick a single one. There are so many. And I, and I hope the fact that there's so many is, is a signal to anyone out there thinking about it to just do it. I mean, I wrote down a few. I mean, every time we launch a new design collection and collaboration, I remember when we launched it with the V&A, it was... Wow. I mean, the v is an institution. I know. I used to work in there and revise in there. And suddenly they are 
you know, a design partner and we have the exclusive license to print on demand their incredible archive of, of assets. Uh, the other was launching in the US. And I don't know if it was a particular high because the launch party was so much fun or whether the actual concept <laughs> was a group of us traveled out to the US to launch it. And there was this kind of like fun concept of a group of people getting on a plane being like, right, let's go launch in the US. And we had this amazing dinner and had parts of the press and other and a lot of our designers out there who had never met. That was an incredible high to actually, you know, plant the British design flag out there. And the, the ad on TV was a high. I mean, it was certainly a high for my mum, who literally <laughs> sat in front of the TV all day waiting for those ads to air. So look, those are those big highs. And then there are these kind of micro highs that you get all the time. Whenever you hear someone talk about Papier, or I remember this happening a few pre-COVID, going into a restaurant for breakfast and seeing the person at the table next to me using a Papier notebook. That feels pretty cool. It's very tempting to just go over and be like, thank you so much for buying that notebook. I, I, <laughs> I was going to ask if you do do that. Very you know. tempting. No, I don't. I, I try and hold myself oh. But yeah, plenty of eyes. It's been so lovely talking to you. So many of your experiences I empathise with, and it feels that you've just got a phenomenal future ahead of you. And I love that you've taken on an industry and I love how considerate you've been when you've taken on that industry to quality, to sustainability, to design, to using designers and artists. So I know that this interview is going to be so helpful to those out there building a brand and sort of, as you said, taking that leap off the diving board and just going mm. for it and and hoping for the best, but bringing your friends along with with it and it's been an utter pleasure. Um, it's a, this time of the podcast where I hand over to you to read a letter that you might read to your younger self. And I'm really looking forward to this one. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Holly. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, so I've, I've written this letter. I have to say it was it was tough, um, but it was actually quite an interesting process. And I've kind of written this to, I guess, a I don't know, 16, 17-year-old self. So here we go. Dear Tamor, you're probably at home right now revising for your exams. You've got the radio on in the background and you're getting through litres of filter coffee. Who knows what time it is? You probably don't. It could be 3am and you're still going, red-eyed, sticking tabs in textbooks and writing out notes in different coloured Muji pens. Note, you'll always be a stationary geek. You've become a bit obsessed. You can't help yourself. You're nervous. You're afraid of failure. You've got something to prove. Well, you can chill out a bit. Take it easy, as dad keeps telling you. You'll get through those exams, and a while later, you'll get a letter through the post. A thick, cream-coloured letter from the Cambridge University Admissions Office telling you you've got a place to read History of Art. The hard work paid off. The first person you'll tell is dad, or Bubba, as you'll still call him. Even he can't conceal his emotions. You'll see the look of pride in his face, and you'll remember it forever. He'll be so proud that he'll go on the phone to everyone he knows to tell him that his son has got a place at Cambridge University. Those three years at university will be some of the best years of your life. I'm writing this to you only as your 31-year-old self, so arguably I may be wrong and the best years are still to come, but it's unlikely. You'll come to realise that the weird, obsessive, all-or-nothing, 
dogged determination to win, to prove others wrong, to make your mum and dad proud, will turn out to be your greatest strength. It's what will get you a job straight out of uni and be what drives you to be very successful in that job. It's ultimately what will drive you to find your purpose and true calling in life as an entrepreneur, a self-employed dream builder. You'll channel all your obsessions into one single, unwavering, crazy mission to build a successful global brand. It'll be called Papier. It'll take over your life, but you'll love every single minute of it. There's perhaps something you should know, though. You probably do know it, but you're not that aware of it. You're not conscious of it, and you definitely don't think about it much. You're very lucky. More than that, you're privileged. You go to a very good private school in London. You're bought everything you need by your incredibly generous parents. You're supported by your parents to follow your dreams and to dream big, to do whatever it is that makes you happy. In a decade's time, you'll realize that there are other people out there, like-minded people with crazy dreams and ambitions who haven't been so lucky and who haven't had the privilege you've had. You'll realize it's not fair. You've been playing on an uneven playing field. So here's some advice I can give you as your slightly older self. Be more grateful and be more giving. It's not all about winning, about being the best. It's about what you do to help others, how you use your privilege, your skills, your talent to enrich the lives of those around you. You'll be judged and remembered not by how successful you are, but by your kindness and generosity, by the lives that you impact. You'll feel happier and richer as a result. Oh, <laughs> How lovely. What a lovely letter. I've got a picture of your dad now calling up every aunt, uncle, everybody, <laughs> telling them the news. And I've also got a picture of your mum sitting glued to the TV during lockdown, yeah. waiting for her son's ad. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? For those of us, and you mentioned some people aren't as lucky, for those of us who have family and parents, and we do want to make them proud and they are proud of us. It's the most wonderful thing. And I hope your parents listen to this podcast and realize how much you still adore them and they adore you. And uh, it's just a lovely thing to hear. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it was quite something reading, actually. Yes, it is. It is. Well, thank you so much for sharing that piece of your soul with us today. And I actually wish you everything. Thank you, Taywar. Thank you. You too, Holly. Before you go, don't forget that to be in with a chance to win a 90-minute mentoring session with me, all you need to do is sign up to NatWest's Business Builder. It's packed full of videos and advice to help you build your business and give you the tools you need. To find out more, head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. Mm -hmm.